NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Hey gang, so I got a new book out. It's called The Upside of Fear, and it's exactly what you think it's about. It's about the good side of, well getting scared. In it, we talk not only about the science and biology behind fear, but the psychology as well. And it's not just coming from me, it's coming from some of the best in the sport. Omar Alhijalan, Jeff Provenzano, Maxine Tate, and so many more have contributed their sometimes terrifying stories to the book to help you overcome your fear. So head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com. You're going to find the link to the book there as well as the other books. It's available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audiobook right now. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe podcast. And it's a return guest, but the first time that I've had the opportunity to speak to him. So tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Oh, Jesus H. Christ. We had to start like this, brother. Hey, man. <laughs> I just start with Chris Stewart's voice in front of mine. Great. No, I love Chris. I'm just kidding, man. Hey, um, my name is Greg Windmiller. I'm the owner of Superior Flight Solutions, uh, prof professional camera pilot, retired uh and canopy coach dude you are so much busier than that title gives off to uh you know what we yeah i am but it's it's just uh man it's like two weeks here three weeks here two weeks here three weeks here but i'm getting i'm getting a lot more time off than i used to though i've got a i've got a you know i've got a great bunch of people to actually work with me got some great people to work for me and so it's it's given me a lot of time to kind of enjoy my retirement slash non-retirement after i retired from the military and here you are, though, burning your day off and your birthday, by the way. Happy birthday. Talking to my ass. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, hey, like I always do, I'm going to jump you back to uh, your roots, not necessarily just in skydiving, but in anything that uh, mainstream would consider extreme. Like, how did it all start for you back in the day? Yeah, um, I was born a poor white child. Um, <laughs> just kidding. 
the Steve Martin's. <laughs> I got that. I'm probably the yeah. only person that did get that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say that out loud because me and you were the only people that actually could listen to this podcast are going to understand it <laughs> under the age of 50. No, uh, um, I started out in the military. I uh, went through a special operations military freefall course at a very young age. Was, um, and I was on a Halo team for a while. And like most people that go through Halo school, they they only do it because it's a way to get to work and it's a job. And most people didn't do it on their own outside of a, um, outside of work. But I really I really enjoyed it. And I, I said, man, I got to do this more often. And so I started kind of doing it on the outside as well. And so I spent a lot of time just skydiving for fun. Uh, and then I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, to be an instructor at the Ranger Camp as a long range surveillance instructor. And then um, while I was there, I joined the parachute team there at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, test jumped uh, crew canopies for red over at flight concepts. Um, <laughs> and while I was, while I was working part-time as a alert instructor, and then my last year over there, um, they were like, Hey, wh- what are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, I'd like to go to the gold lights tryouts. And they're like, but my unit wouldn't let me go. And so the post commander was like, Hey, do, do you want to come over here full time? Cause at the team, the time, the, the team was only volunteer. I'm like, sure. He's like, I'm going to stand up a full-time team. So he brought me and three other guys over in the full-time team. <clears throat> we, I went over there full time and about one month later he retired and the guy that was in charge absolutely hated us. So he chopped the team and he's like, Hey, you guys are done. <clears throat> and the commander of the airborne school, cause I got stationed from the ranger camp to the airborne school. He's like, Hey, uh, do you, do you want to become an airborne school instructor since you got nothing to do for a year? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> Not only no, but hell no. I will kill somebody over here. I don't know. I have the temperament for these idiots. And uh, he said, all right, well, let me know. Uh, Whenever you need some paperwork signed, and every now and then, like once every couple months, check in with me. See you. And so I moved to Atlanta, and I was uh, working as working at uh, Scott Ed Monroe mm. up there for Scott doing tandems and goofing off and shooting video, whatever. And then uh, during the week, I was uh, goofing off over at Flight Concepts. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because we talked pre-podcast, and and uh, you kind of sideways let out that you have one of the most interesting origin stories leading into skydiving ever, and that's a shark encounter. Oh yeah. <laughs> what the well, fuck, you, man? Who the hell who the hell gets scared you know, into skydiving by a shark? Yeah, the, the type of unit that I was in that I really, really wanted to be in um, only had uh two different teams. There was they were there were six man teams and there were six six man teams. And so there's 36 operations in a unit, and there was three water teams and three halo teams. So the military freefall teams and then the water teams. Well, there wasn't any slots on the Halo teams, and you had to be—you're supposed to be like on the in the unit for a really long time before you get the transition over there. So I had, so in order to go to a Halo team, I had to wait my time out on a water team, and we do stuff like pushing boats out of the back of a planes at high altitude, right, or like fifteen hundred feet, two thousand feet, and we'd follow them out with parachute round parachutes and jump in, or we'd Halo cast like jumping out of helicopters from like fifteen feet off the ground as it ripped down the river, um, and we took boats. Uh, but sometimes we didn't have that luxury. And so we were dropped off out in the middle of nowhere. And we have to do what's called over the horizon surface swims. And so we have to swim for really long, like you're getting out, like you can't see the shore. Oh. And so um, it's just, you know, swimming through jellyfish and getting stung and murky deep water. And I really sucked at holding my breath. And <laughs> you know, we weren't full scuba. We didn't have like the, all the money that the scuba teams had. So we had, we had, we we're just called surface swimmer team. So, you know, we had mask fence, snorkel type stuff like that, but you know, swimming, you're like swimming at night and there's like five, five of your best friends swimming along the night. Next thing you know, you get bumped inside the leg and you turn around and tell your jackass friend to, Hey, stop kicking me. And you're like, Hey, there's nobody over there. <laughs> Shit. They're all on the other side. And a few minutes later, your jackass friend kicks you again. And your jackass come to find out has a dorsal fin. And, um, but we were, yeah. we, were in, we, we were in the Rio Chagras in uh, Panama swimming and we're doing what's called boats capsizing drills and when the when the inflatable zodiac boats get water in them what you do you have three guys stand on top of a gun on one side the other three guys are on the opposite side in the water but they're holding on to the gunnels and what happens is the three guys standing on top of the boat have ropes tied off to the handles and they lean back and what it does is their weight pitches the boat and tips the boat upside down and the three guys that are in the water just hold on the boat and they actually get pulled on top of the boat when it's upside down and so and then they grab the ropes lean back and flip it over. You can literally capsize a boat and uncapsize it in about less than a minute. Wow. It's really fast. It's really efficient. And so we were in the water. We were just kind of playing around. We were in the water and uh, I was one of the guys in the water and my buddy goes, Hey, check it out, man. And I look over between us and there's this rainbow looking weird fish just kind of fluttering on the top of the water, just kind of like flat fluttering. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. That's kind of weird, you know? So I'm looking back at the boat because we're trying to hurry up and do this. 
And all of a sudden the water just swirls and I just get spun around almost 360. And I'm like, what the hell? And the guy on top of the boat looks down, it's like shark, shark. And uh, he was a lower ranking guy. And the guy beside me was high ranking. He's like, he starts threatening him with, uh, get me in this boat or I'm going to smoke you. I'm going to make you do pushups if I get bit by this shark, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> we're getting up in this boat, like, and we don't have time. So like I'm getting up there and um, in the process, we get up on top of this boat. We row this boat back to the dock. And there's these guys like t- yelling at us, hey, row the- turn the boat back over, turn the boat back over. And we're like, go F yourself. <laughs> and then we get back over there and this Panamanian kid comes over and says, hey, uh, you guys shouldn't be here. It's the largest sh- hammerhead shark breeding ground in the world. It's where Jacques Cousteau's son got killed. Uh, and he said, uh, hammerhead shark breeding season started early. They're here now. Get it? You do not need to be in the water. They're super aggressive. And so they brought everybody in. <clears throat> but the funny part, in the meantime, like I was getting up on the boat and I had an Ironman watch. And as I'm getting on the boat, my Iron Man watch got ripped off my hand by the gunnel and I lost it. And it gave me this nasty scar on my wrist. And so people ask what happened. I'm like, shark attack. <laughs> shark attack. It's been a shark attack victim. Like that scene from the, uh, was it the uh, couple's retreat? Which in a, in a, a broad. Sharks, sharks. I do. I love sharks. I absolutely. I know the scientific name. A lot of my, I absolutely love sharks, but sharks can go fuck themselves. Yeah, man. You know, I'll tell you what, it's really kind of funny because I, uh, I've i done a lot of shark dives in Fiji. I did one called the Benga Shark Dive, which is with open water, no cages or anything with bulls and tiger sharks. And when I'm down there on air and I can see everything, it's great. But I'm also an open water, long distance swimmer and I'm fucking terrified of sharks because yeah. you're on top you can't see anything and anytime the motions and the splashes that attract them <laughs> oh yeah man so i'm right there with you in that i think sharks are amazing and in certain circumstances i like checking them out but when i'm swimming on the surface fuck that no 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 no, not cool yeah, it's like if you one of my um one of my bucket list things to do like my top five things to do whatever in the world um one of them is actually uh be in the water with great white you know, I yeah, whatever, but dude, I just, I want to go to Galapagos Island where they got the like super clear water and the big fat, you know, great whites there. But I love, dude, I love sharks. My favorite movie of all time, Jaws. Yeah. 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 Well, what's, uh, what's the, the place down in Mexico? Uh, Guadalupe. 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 I'm sorry. I said Galapagos. It's Guadalupe. Yeah, Guadalupe. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what, let's go. Cause that's been on my bucket list for a long time. Dude, I, don't tease me, man. I will, I will do it. I will do yeah. it. I will get a massage the whole way down there. <laughs> but you, you get on a boat in San Diego and you spend like three or four days on this boat yep. in the water and they have like a chef on board and they feed you and all kinds of men. And if, they're like, Hey, if you don't, we don't see any sharks, we'll give you like, you get the next trip is free. Oh man. So, if you, if you can't find any takers to go with you, I'm in. I'm, I am dude. I'm, I'm I am 100% going to do it. I just don't know when I'm going to get time. <laughs> so, Hey, uh, uh, back to the jumping. When you, you started jumping in the military. Yeah. Yes, sir, I did. So starting jumping in the military, now having spent, you know, an entire career, both with your feet in the military and in the civilian world, how does it differ learning how to jump in the military as opposed to going out and learning as a civilian? It's funny, though, because what, you know, being in the military and having that military mindset, um, military think about all civilians, you know, this is back in the day of like, before Point Break, you know, like, before Point Break came out and all these people were like, (laughs) All the mainstreamers came out like, oh, my God, just got to have you know, lawyers, whatever. Before that, it was just literally the hippies, you know, it was the hippies and the free love and the and the carefree people and the people that whatever. But after Point Break came out, it was like everybody, the doctors, yeah. whatever. It was, what you know, one of the greatest things for our sport. Oh, yes. One of, the, one, of the, one of the probably top 10 greatest things that ever happened to Scott Evans is that movie right there because it inspired yep. a generation of, of and generations yeah. of unique people who made our, our, our you know, our, our world you know, just, just crazy, just diverse. Oh so, yeah. So before that, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was the hippies. You know? <laughs> well, so, it was the Fandango generation, right? There you go. It was a Fandango generation. And so, you know, when I was in the military, it was like all the military thought the exact same thing. Ah, oh, a bunch of pot smoking hippie, whatever, you know? So, you know, they had like, didn't really, like, they're dangerous and they do all crazy stuff. Cause, cause, cause we watched the Fandango too, you know? And we <laughs> thought, we thought that's what they did, but Oh, they're all carefree, lunatic, whatever. They're not safe, blah, blah, blah. We're safe because we do a safety brief. I mean, the military does a safety brief every single day. Mm. You know, if you're going to jump that day, you do a safety brief. Twenty Prior to 24 hours prior, you have to do a safety brief. If you do a jump the next day, you have to do a safety brief. Mm. And the safety brief consists of complete EP review. 
to include people standing up and actually practicing their EPs and, and going over every single possible EP that there is, they wow. actually review it and go over it. So it's, it, so they think we're super safe. We're super safe because we go over EPs. And then on the civilian side, they're like, Jesus Christ, the military dangerous. They only jump like once every six months. Yeah. They go over their EPs every time, but they only jump every once every six months and they jump these huge canopies, you know, they're, so the funny thing is the military thinks the civilians are dangerous and the civilians think the military dangerous. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and you know, and they're both right. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I I was lucky enough as an AFF instructor to have a couple of military guys um, go through the course with me years and years back. And of course, the one thing I recognized immediately is these fucking guys just do exactly what I say, period. Not even a yeah. question. It's a do this, 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 and this. And the only question would be, wait, was that before this or this before that? That's it, man. And those guys were just straight to it. Whereas, of course, the civilians are like, what i gotta do uh, and there's just a military are just very much a yes sir all right let's get it done and, and you know something special like that and you know being inherently dangerous military people skydiving where you recall it is you know they know that like if i don't do what i'm told i'm probably there's a possibility i could die sure and so they you know whenever they read off the jump brief and they say like uh eps and stuff like that it's word for word Wow, you know, it's it is word for word there's no fluctuation there's no one because the the memorization through you know, the practical exercise, but also through the verbiage, you know, sure. kind of use that technique also to help them help them remember what to do. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's, they're very, very like mine. It's one of the things I, I love working about with the military. I love working for the military, but I love working with the military as well is, is he was like, Hey, we're going to do a, B and C on this jump, you know, and some civilians were like, <gasps> you can hear their, you can hear, hear their ass pucker, you know, through their pants. Right. And you could, you could they, they would take the air oxygen out of the air for like a 10 people 10 person surrounding because they inhale so bad they're like, ah, you know sure. and the military, guy, military guy goes okay absolutely hey, I'm take my imagine teaching a military guy crew came through a lot of work hey i'm gonna take my parachute i'm gonna smack you in the back of the head with it when i do that i want you to reach back to your feet and grab it and you're like okay <laughs> yep yeah exactly okay. it there's no way. I mean, it just that kind of um that kind of regimented training just wouldn't work in the civilian world it just wouldn't no no absolutely not now, what was the transition like? Because obviously you started out training in the military, but you transitioned to doing both. So what was it like when you started jumping in the civilian world? You had to do crossover training and all that, right? You know what? I really didn't. I really didn't. <laughs> Some knucklehead gave me a parachute and didn't tell me that, uh, hey, the handle is on the bottom of the parachute and not up here on the chest. And so my first ever civilian skydive, I actually, I, I jumped outside with uh, I think Jay Stokes was doing my fucking wife's tandem at the time. I think Gino Suarez was uh, who I eventually ended up working with both of them later on. Uh, was doing the video. I think I almost killed Gino because uh, you know we were out there skydiving and the tandem pulled. And he looked at me and he's like, oh, he "Gives me a thumbs up," and I give him a thumbs up, and he gives me a thumbs up. I give a thumbs up, and he points at me. I'm like, "You brother, yeah." <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I was like, "Oh shit!" He wants me to open. I'm like, "Okay, sweet. I'll go and open my parachute." And I go down and reach to grab the ripcord on my chest. I'm like, hey, it's not there. Where did it go? I'm like, oh, shit, I can't find this thing. And after a period of time goes by, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's in the bottom of the container. I forgot about these things. Nobody ever gave me a class. Nobody get, they just handed me a parachute and said, go. Oh, but anyway, man. After I, I killed him, yeah, I just, I, my first, my first parachute that I jumped was, um, was an accuracy parachute, you know, like my first civilian parachute I, ever bought, I bought from Tony Thacker at Skycat at Rayford. But my, you know, I, I just fell in love with accuracy. And to me, the coolest thing in the world was to be able to land wherever you want. Mm. And I would tell I would tell students this when I go to class. I'd say, my first twenty five hundred jumps, I never jumped a parachute smaller than two hundred sixty five square feet. <laughs> they were all seven cells and accuracy, whatever. I, when I was when I moved to Georgia, um, I was jumping at Scott of Opelika, Buddy Blue's place, former Buddy Blue, he rest in peace, just passed recently. But um, <clears throat> old star major, uh, special forces. But I would, they would take a paper plate and they would put it out in the field. And they put the paper plate on top of the picnic table. And this is like, I had like 500 jumps, six, you know, seven, eight jumps. And they would put it on the picnic table. They, they, they put it on top of a phone booth one time. And I would tell a story. It's like, I said, kids, a phone booth is a little box that you get in to make a phone call with a phone that's attached to a box. But um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was so cool that I could land wherever I wanted. Um, and no matter where it was, and, and like I would, they would like move cups and plates aside or cups and boxes aside and put the paper plate around right top of the pink table. I'm like, okay, well, I'll land on that, I guess, you know? Sure, sure. I didn't think it was a big thing. I thought everybody, I thought everybody who had experience could do it, but I just, I just fell in love with accuracy. So I had no interest in downsizing it whatsoever. Now, as you were making that transition, 
because you were active duty military at the time, was it a bit of a culture shock getting onto the drop zone and seeing how free and loose the the civilian skydiving community can be? I was spoiled. You know, it really wasn't for me. And the reason being is because when I when I went to a civilian drop zone, it was at, you know, I was I was working at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So Rayford drop zone was the civilian drop zone, you know, so sure. But that was inhabited mostly by military freefall instructors because the school was right there. The Golden Knights were there. So most of the staff and 90 percent of people there were military, mm. you know. And then when I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, the closest drop zone was Skydive Opelika in Opelika, Alabama. Um, and Sergeant Major Buddy Blue was running the drop zone. <laughs> and, and more than 75 percent, 80 percent of people there were from Fort Benning. There you, you go. So I grew, I grew up spoiled on military on drop zones that were like mostly military based. So there wasn't like the whole like crazy culture. Well, there was a crazy culture, but we were the crazy ones. And so sure. It's kind of crazy. Is yours a military family? Uh, my dad was in the military. Um, he was a, a truck driver in the army. Um, that's about it. I was, I was, uh, and there was no real like desire to go to the military by anybody else. I was just from, from the time I could, I could remember, you know, like sure. I, I would tell when I would tell like my army story, kids, whatever, I said, almost every child, as far as a boy, had those little green army men. Yeah. You know, everybody their favorites, you know, the rifle guy or the bazooka guy. Nobody liked the radio guy, you know, but um, or the laying down guy, whatever. But like I always wanted to be those one of those little green army men, you know. That sure. was that was my whole thing. Like I thought that was the coolest thing. So when I was growing up, I only ever wanted to be a police officer, a stunt man, because the lead majors. Oh yeah. He had Fall and guy, man. Up. Yeah, fall guy, brother. <laughs> or, or an army guy. You know, I wanted to be in the army. You know, now, that, that was kind of like my thing. What did the uh, What did the family think of of the direction you took in the army? Because I mean, it wasn't just soldiering, man. You're doing some pretty yeah. intense shit. I never told him I joined the army, so, <laughs> was, uh, so I kind of went and took my test. Got a day off of school. Went took the test. Whatever. I joined the army at 17. Couldn't ship out until I was 18, so I had like a summer off after school. Cause I graduated like in May and then August, so July, yeah, July went off, but I'm like, Hey, uh, just let you guys know. They're like, what do you want to do? What are you going to do? What do you do? I'm like, Hey, just let you know, you know, <laughs> I'm going to the army. And they're like, uh, huh. And this was before the first Gulf war. Sure. So, you know, I went in the army, joined the army, went to basic IT airborne school and then off to do what I was doing. And then, um, yeah, I just, the first Gulf war happened and my parents were like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm like, it's okay. It'll be over in a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Oh, you and I are very similar in that I joined the military at 17 as well and had to wait until just after my 18th birthday. So in July, I'm, uh, my 18th birthday was in uh, June and July. I was in boot for the Navy. Uh, and yeah. in July, I, was in, I was in, I was in the basic training for uh, army in July. Where'd you go to boot? Fort Benning, Georgia. Oh, in July. Yeah. Fun, fun, fun. I went to basic air, basic training, AIT and the airborne school. AIT is your advanced individual training to give your, and mine was infantry. So it's one of, you know, nug, carry rock, nug, carry gun, nug, don't shoot, don't shoot rock, (laughs) shoot gun. So, um, yeah, I just, but I, but my whole thing, I stayed at Fort Benning's airborne school is right there. Sure, sure. Now, as you're making the transition and you're getting just as much into the civilian uh, side of skydiving as you were the military, you obviously went and you said you were, you're chucking drogues. So you obviously went through the training to become a tandem instructor. Were you doing AFF as well? Yeah, not, well, not till later. I didn't, I didn't do AFF until later on. But the funny thing, I was, I was at uh, Fort Manning, Georgia. And, you know, Paul Rafferty was one of my idols growing up. And, the, and you know, he was like, at the time, he was the only like five-time world champion um, just, and just an all-around great guy, man. And I met him at Fort Benning or Fort Bragg. And I went to Fort Benning, me and a buddy of mine, uh, like, so we were on the parachute team that supported jump stuff um, at Fort Benning. It was a demonstration team. And me and him hopped on a C-130 on a Friday. I took a C-130 from Fort Benning, Georgia to Pope Air Force Base, hitch, hitchhiked. Uh, Cause we kind of arrived from somebody we didn't know off Fort Bragg, uh, off Pope Air Force Base in Fort Bragg. Uh, we got over to, to Rayford drop zone. Paul Rafferty gave us our tandem rating that weekend. And it was me and my buddy and like under canopy, we were yelling at each other. And I'm like, he's like, turn now. I'm like, no, go straight. And he's like, turn now. Like he's on the front of me trying to like control the canopy. There's a guy on the ground with the windsock in his hand running around in circles as a joke. Um, <laughs> but we have got our tandem rating that weekend and then hopped on a C-130 on Monday and flew back to Fort Benning. So what a trip, a, man. We got really lucky, man. 
You know, I never got to meet Raph, but oddly enough, he was who hired me to uh, work for Skydive Cross Keys uh, via email and a telephone call. He had hired me, and sadly, before I got to meet him, he had passed. Um, but uh, it's a unique uh, individual. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Now, so you start working in the civilian world, um, chucking drugs and everything. But when did the urge to go the competition route and all that start coming about? Um, well, I was when I was at Fort Benning, we were doing, uh, you know, we did demonstration, we did doing crew stuff, came through a lot of work. Um, and it was like me and my buddy Dan Levitt and Chuck Blue and um, and Chuck Blue's, I think, wife at that time, Christine. We were, uh, we were doing four way and they had the Georgia skydiving lead, the GSL, and like Danny Page was running at the time. And so we were doing four way then and then. Um, the Golden Knights had an invitational thing. To, uh, so I was dabbling in four-way, um, a little bit eight-way, can't be relative work and accuracy primarily. Mm. So when I went to Golden Knights tryouts, um, I had about 2,500 jumps when I went to tryouts. Most people have about 100 to 150 jumps when they go tryouts. So I had about 2,500. And so um, I think there's only, there only two people that actually beat me in accuracy out of all the cadre. And uh, both of them were on the accuracy team at the time. Wow. One of them was Brian Krause and the other one was Brian uh, Smith. And they were both currently on the accuracy team. And they're like, hey, you know, you did pretty good at accuracy. And so when I finished tryouts, they're like, hey, you want to come over to the accuracy team? And I'm like, no. <laughs> oh. And the reason being is like, as a new guy on the team, you're basically your job is to shut the fuck up. Like right. if you're like a team meeting and everybody's talking and the new guy says, well, I think we could do this. And everybody looks and goes, shut the fuck up, new guy. You're not allowed to talk. Right. And so they're like, hey, you have to go to demonstration team. And so they were like, Hey, you want to go straight to competition team? I'm like, dude, if I go to a certain competition team, they'll like, they'll fucking hang me in the streets. You know, that's a big no, no. Right. And the competition team is like, we don't care. I'm like, yeah, but everybody else does. It's a big deal with them, you know? And so, yeah. But, and then six months later I was a team leader. So, oh, that's awesome. So, so everybody, hey, everybody that wasn't on the competition team hated me. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a very, I was, I was blessed beyond measure, obviously. Uh, the sergeant major, Gary Moeller, he was former accuracy guy, so he loved accuracy. Wow. Uh, Brent Dixon, a buddy of mine, he was former range instructor. He was on the team, so it was, I got I got pretty lucky. I've been, I've been blessed my entire career, man. I got um, from how I got started. You know, I I, I tell I told the story once. I broke my ankle and my wrist my first night jump in freefall school. Oh, and I'm a private dude, and I'm they send me to the medic, and the medic goes, "Hey, you know, we we got to put a cast on those." I'm like, "Hey, here's the deal, man." This court, this this school is for special forces. It is a special force military. I'm like, dude, I'm a fucking like, I'm a private in the regular army. Because I'm a nurse unit, I get to go through here. But it's like it was the only conventional military unit getting to go to unconventional training. I was like, dude, I'll never get a chance to ever do this ever again in my entire life. Mm. I was like, I have like one or two more jumps to do, and I'm done. And he's like, all right, well, take care. I'm going to bandage you up, come back and like, come back and, and hit me up whenever you're done and I'll give you a cast. I'm like, all right. And that dude, man, I, I would, I would kiss that dude on his lips to this day if I found him. But when I went back, you have to do like progression jumps and then you have to like do the last two jumps. There's one of them is like a, it's a daytime with everything, oxygen, weapon, mat, you know, everything. Sure. And it's called wall locker. It's called a wall locker jump because it's everything that's in your wall locker. You have to put it on and jump it. And there's a daytime wall locker and then, it, and then you do nighttime wall locker. And what happened was because I was at the medic, I missed my daytime wall locker jump. And I'm like, Fuck. and the first sergeant of the school's name is Bubba Ham. To this day, every time I, every time my graduation comes around, I send Bubba Ham an email or a, a Facebook message saying, I appreciate you. <laughs> but um, He said, he said, he said, kid, go, there's a, there's a, uh, it was a white Ford or Chevy. I can't remember what it was. Dodge pickup truck. He was good. There's a truck out there. Go wait for me in it. I got there and sit in it. And I'm like, shit, he's going to take me back to my unit personally. <laughs> like he's the first sergeant is literally gonna drive me back to my unit, drop me off, or take me to the hospital, or whatever. I'm like, fuck, you know. He comes outside with all the shit in his hand and throws in the back of the truck, and he's like, We're going to Rayford. And drove me in his POV all the way out to Rayford. And Jane Paul Thacker, who didn't know me from anybody, said he's gonna let Bubba Ham take me and Bubba in the twin otter by ourselves and go do my go do my graded exercise jump. No shit. Gene Paul Thacker, who I who I didn't know from Adam, and he didn't know me for Adam, let this fucking kid do this jump, man. And then, uh, and that was, uh, yeah, you know, about fifteen years or fourteen years later, I was sitting in the bar at Rayford. I, at this time, I'd known him quite quite 
quite well, you know. And uh, I was on the Style and Action team, and I, you know, they did away with Style and Action team in the U.S. because they're doing away with Style in the U.S. Whatever. And I moved to a TM team, and I was competing in local uh, canopy potting meets. And Gene Paul was like, "So you're into this little small parachute stuff, right?" I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Seems pretty stupid." I'm like, "Yeah, it is." He goes, "Stupid and dangerous and whatever." He's like, "That's how we got to where we're at today." He's like, "Keep doing it." Nice. He's like, "What do you?" He's like, "What do you need to get better?" I said, "I need a pond, Gene Paul." He's like, what is it? What is that? And they kind of like, I kind of detailed what a pond is. He's like, well, if you had a choice, where would you put one around here? And I told him, he's like, all right. And Gene Paul's about half lit on red wine. He goes, all right, well, meet me here tomorrow. We'll dig you a hole. <laughs> Fucking nine o'clock in the morning. The next morning, my phone rings. Where are you at, punk? <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm over here with a fucking a backhoe ready to dig you and bulldozer ready to dig you a pond. I'm like, He's fucking serious. And no shit. I, I staggered, staggered over there half drunk with a cup of coffee in my hand. And he, dude, he started digging that pond that day. You know, it's kind of funny, man. I learned a long time ago. Uh, uh, you see a, um, an older gentleman that's a little bit drunk, tells you he's going to do something. He's probably going to fucking do it. <laughs> and a young drunk kid, he ain't doing shit. <laughs> no, but the old guys, man, they remember that yeah. shit. They still do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's honestly, I, I think anybody that's been long term in the sport of skydiving can look back at somebody somewhere along the lines that did them a solid that made all the difference in their career, right? Yeah, I, I have no shortage of people who did me solid. So that's why if I get a chance to do somebody solid, dude, I'll never say no. Yeah, I'll man. Go, I mean, I'll go to my way to do a solid for somebody. It's pass it on. That's been the theme of this podcast, and and uh, it, it kind of just grew on its own. Is that the the overriding theme of this thing has always been the community, because that's what it boils down to, right? I mean, that's what gets you at the drop zone early and keeps you there late. The jumps are great, and the stuff you learn to do in the sky is amazing. But it's the people that keep you in it long term. That's that's what you know. That's what this this sport's missing. You know, the fireside chats. You know, the campfire chats or whatever. Yeah, we got social media, but that's like kind of expanded into like bashing and, and hate, whatever. But the fireside chats, you know, we're just that's where that's where there's so much experience and so much bonding happened. You know, that's and I think that's that's a lot of what the sport's missing, the bonding stuff. So thank God for the boogies coming back. You know, yeah. the boogies kind of died off for a little while and they kind of, you know, um, but thank God for all those boogies coming back. Well, I think it's coming back around, right? Because, I mean, there's been a real spike in stuff like this podcast that's more conversational based that yeah. I think is trying to fill the hole that was left behind by the lack of that bonfire kind of environment. So I really do feel like it's coming back. Yeah. So, you know, some people will just like hearing themselves talk. And so they do podcasts, whatever. And so be it, you know, but I don't care, man. I don't care if your stuff's filled with 59 minutes of bullshit. If yeah. you have one minute of education that somebody can go, oh, wow. Yeah. And change your life. So be it, man. Just, the hard part is getting the people to, to sit there for the 59 and a half minutes to, to get to that point. Oh, and, yeah, um, man. I, dude, I, I love the I love the freaking uh, podcast. I love the information being put out. And it's just it's it's just so inspirational to see people stepping forward and like recognizing the whole stuff missing. I, I wish I had the time to do something like that. Cause I, I would love to do it, but I'm, yeah, I'd like to see it like a, a group, like a group one, you know, sure. the problem is a group when you have to have everybody like in the, in the place sure. you know, they constantly step on each other, but yeah, just people that feed off each other. Oh, I, had yeah. a, I had a barbecue at my house one time and um, uh, Craig Gerard was in town visiting <laughs> And I had him over there. I was like, hey, you want to come over for a cookout? We're going to do dinner. He's like, yeah, sure. You know, and um, one of his buddies he worked with on his gold nights was Scott Rhodes. And I was like, hey, Scott Rhodes, come over, whatever. And it's, it's like, hey, do you mind if we invite Tim Nunzio over? I'm like, sure, come on, whatever. And dude, they were all three at my house. And we were sitting there. We had a barbecue cookout, whatever. And I just sat there <laughs> with my jaw, like touching the table the whole time. And I love to hear myself talk too, bro. But you know what? I didn't say shit. I just listened there. I'm like, I'm like wow. This is the stories they were telling. I was like, dude, and I and I'm a, I find myself a bit of a historian buff. Uh, I love the history behind skydiving. It like in the Golden Knights, like he's like, hey, who were the first thirteen members of the Golden? Like you could name them. You know, it was like a thing. Like who did the first baton pass? You know, like Steve Snyder. So like it was like all this stuff. Like remembering the past was so important to them because you had to sure. respect your heritage. You know. Um, but I I find myself a bit of a historian buff, and I I know quite a bit. You know, like love to listen to whatever. And I heard stories I never even thought I'd hear. I was like, it was, it was incredible. It was probably yeah. one of my top five nights of just hanging around people. And I was I was doing the one thing that, you know, that I preach, preach, preach. And that's like, hey, if you want to have a great conversation, be a good listener. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was I couldn't and I couldn't I couldn't speak 
not because I was trying to be a good listener. I couldn't speak because I was dumbfounded and baffled by the stuff they put out. It was, like, it was, a, it was, it was a, such a good night, man. I had such a great night listening to those guys chat. Oh yeah. Well, and that was kind of the thing too. And again, what the, this has become about is I get to have these amazing conversations with people that I admire and, and share this bond with or look up to. And it kind of just gets to, I get to preserve it all, which is something you don't usually get to do. And the best oh, yeah. shows that I've ever done are the ones where I barely get to talk. Cause I'm like you, man, I, you put me in a fucking empty room with white walls and I'm going to talk the whole goddamn night. You know, I mean, it just, <laughs> that's just how I am. And so I'll, a lot of times I'll tell my guests, if I don't get to say a fucking thing, this whole podcast, then it was a good show. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. it, this shit ain't about me. I think you're my 302nd episode. There's nothing. My audience hasn't fucking heard from me yet. So <laughs> it's it, it, the less I talk, the better. Now, yeah, my most of my career is like politically correct, politically correct, politically correct. You're, I'm in the army, and the in the army, in the army, and I'm like find myself the first, I think the first five seconds I said a cuss word, so I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I gotta kind of, I've, I've been able to loosen up a little bit more, relax a little bit more, you know, I'm like sure. oh, I feel like I get to be me a little bit more. And so sure. Well, I was super lucky in that um, uh, many, many moons ago, I got the great good fortune to start writing for Blue Skies magazine because Cola reached out to me and they went out of their way to tell me, be over the top, be inappropriate, talk about shit you're not supposed to talk about. And so that, I mean, not that I had a problem with that in the first place, but that kind of became my brand. So now- yeah, no, 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 no. Believe me, uh, being uh, um, being reserved has never been something people uh, charge me with. That's for sure. <laughs> I tell you what, man, your personality, your personality, and the way you talk about things, and the way you describe things, and the way you use like colorful like explanations that keep you wrapped up. Your audiobook, man. Oh, dude. Oh, I thanks, was, man. I was, I was. You do not promote your book enough. I teach seminars and lectures on fears and I, and, and there isn't, there isn't a single class that I don't teach. There is a single class that doesn't have a section that talks about fears. Mm. And when I, when I, when I listen, when I listened, <laughs> not read, <laughs> I have a tendency span of a fucking gnat. When I listened to your book and it was like, cause I do a lot of traveling and what trips, whatever. It's perfect for me. I was like, I fell in love with your book, dude. It was like, it just hit home. We use different phrases and terminology here and there, whatever. But I was like, it's, word for word what comes out of my mouth to people you know and i'm like is and i see it all the time on facebook i, I say i saw it twice yesterday yesterday i saw it twice one of them was like uh u.s fun jumpers or whatever and one of them was like beginner skydivers i'm a moderator for it was like somebody's like hey how do i get over the fear hey how, you know and everybody's trying to get over the fear you know and, and i was like oh you gotta you gotta read this book man if you, you don't read the book if you don't read the book i'll even give them sections hey read this chapter of this book that's what you're looking for Awesome. I mean, it's uh, the, the actually the funny thing was that book was inspired by the beginner skydiving forum that you're talking about, because I would see all these posts about overcoming fear and here and there and the other thing. And then I would talk to listeners of the podcast that would tell me their favorite bits from most every interview was hearing somebody like Jeff Provenzano or Omar Al-Hijalan or these fucking rock stars in the sport talking about when they were shitting their pants and yeah. everybody Omar's, going, dude, I knew Omar's alive. I didn't know the outcome of that one. I'm like, oh shit, I hope he makes it. <laughs> Dude, he told me I that story. Omar for 20 years and I'm like, I hope he makes it. I'm running root foremost on the side. Please, Omar, please make it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, you got me, you had me too wrapped up in that book with the way you're describing it and, the, and using, you saying in his words, whatever. I was like, oh shit. He, uh, yeah. well, I mean, he's, he, he was a hero to me when I started out in skydiving, you know, just Absolutely. because I started with the same thing, man. It was a, it was a point break beginning. And then as soon as I got a hold of my first ever, uh, Chronicles video, you know, you're <laughs> watching Olav and Omar and, and, uh, Mike Vale and all these guys doing this insane shit. He was an instant fucking hero, you know, and then yeah. 28 years later for him to be a friend that's telling me these incredible stories of the shit that he went through in Nepal. It just, it, it's, I, that's one thing that I actually think gets talked about a fair amount in skydiving, but it doesn't get highlighted enough is the ability to deal with and overcome fear. Yeah. You know, my, my biggest thing is to talk about stressors, you know, stressors or additional things that fear, like what stressors do you have going on in your life that, that, compound to the fears or whatever. And I, I tell them, I, I started these seminars. I don't like, there was a university of Iowa study done. In, I think it was, I can't remember the dates or whatever. It was the study of fears and like Scott Evans was one of them. I talked about like one of the things I say, like, all right, 
when your parachute's fully open, right? In a specific scenario, your parachute's fully open, functional. It's not going to malfunction anymore, whatever. What are your three biggest fears under canopy? What are your three biggest fears? You know, and then obviously the number one said, what is the number one most dangerous one? It's like, all right, the fear of collision. And I was like, is that a fear you should always have? And they're like, absolutely. That's a respectable fear that you should have. But we use education and knowledge and try to like, like make ourselves smarter in order to negate those fears in order to help deal with those fears. But that's a, that's a, it's a rational fear. And then there's some irrational fears, like uh, how hard or soft is the earth going to be you know, landing <laughs> going to be? Oh, like, right. um, I'm like, is that rational? No. Cause you're in complete control. You're the one in control of 100%, 100% in control of it. As long as you do certain things. And then um, uh, where am I going to land at? You know, if you do proper planning and you're like, Hey, I'm going to exit here, whatever. But if I don't exit here and I can't make it there. Okay. I have another, another landing area plan. You know, it's like, if you can proper planning and, and education and training, whatever, you can negate those fears down to nothing, you know? Sure. And I think those fears, those fears in their heads, like, uh, was it how there was like once every 30 seconds to 45 seconds. Now imagine how long you're under canopy. You know, that's a lot of fear going into canopy. Oh, yeah. When, open up, when they open up, the first thing they're thinking about is like, oh my God, please open, please open, please, please open. When the parachute opens, they're like, oh my God, where's everybody at? Please don't run into me. Please don't run into me. Please don't run into me. <laughs> and yeah. then there's a period of time where they're like, I sucked on that jump or I was awesome on that jump. I hope their cameras were turned on or whatever. Or hope nobody's giving us turned on. And there's a little bit of like, oh God, where's everybody at? Where's everybody at? Where's the drop zone at? Am I going to land there? Where's the drop zone at? Am I going to land there? And then it's the constant, please nobody run into me. Please nobody run into me. And then it, and then, it, you know, it starts getting down lower, lower to the ground. It's like, please, God, don't let this suck. Please, God, don't let this suck. Please, God, don't let this suck. You know, there's a lot of fear going on. And so, and I tell people in my classes, I'm like, hey, here's the deal. Today, I'm going to remove one of those fears. And I tell them, if, if you do what I ask you to do, if you do what I ask you to do, notice there's a caveat. If you do what I ask you to do, I guarantee you by the end of the day today, you're going to have one of your softest landings you've ever had in your entire life or your money back guaranteed. And I nice. never get anybody. I said, and I'm going to eliminate one of your fears. And I'm not, I'm not eliminating your fear. I'm giving them the knowledge to kind of fight their fear. And you know, that fear might come back later on or whatever, but it's, 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 it's the water thing. If I tell you like, drink this water, it's special landing fluid. <laughs> flare, it's flare fluid. And they drink it. They're like, their flares are the best ever. You know, they're going to, you know, it's, it's the positive reinforcement and the positive mindset that like set them up for success. Of course. Um, but yeah, just, and, and I tell them, I was like, I was like, if you do what I ask. And I said, I said, by the third jump today, I promise you, you're probably gonna have one of your softest lanes you ever had if you do what I ask you. And I say third jump because the first jump, they just do what they normally do with some seminars, whatever. They just do what they normally do. The second yep. jump, they're trying something a little bit different and it usually goes to shit. Right. You know, it's usually worse than their first. We'll, we'll like, they'll do the first jump and they'll go in and do a seminar for about an hour, about two and a half hours, two, two and a half hours, depending on the time frame and the class size. But we do like a seminar for like two, two and a half hours. And then they'll come out and they'll do that jump and they're trying something new. And that's sometimes they'll overthink it or do whatever. And it'll go shit. And I, a buddy of mine, when Shaggyo, uh, he's, he's the manager of it, comes to, they, dude's fucking come in and land. He's like looking out there in the field. And he kind of like, without even looking at me, he goes, hmm, two and a half hours. And that's, all you, that's what they learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I was, and when we come back in the, in the classroom, I said, hey, check it out. This is what I asked you to do. This is what you did. This is what your end result. Now do you see? Oh yeah. Sure. And by the third jump, they're usually spot on. And so yeah, sure. just well, and I, I mean, I let's love... face it, there's no little level of satisfaction greater than doing something that scared you, figuring out that you can do it even though it scared you, and then figuring out that you did it well and you had a little fun too. Holy fuck. Man, there's nothing better. Yeah, what over, overcoming our fears or things we thought we were scared of and realized wow, I wasn't really scared. I just, I was scared of the fact that I, I tell them like the biggest fear in the world is the fear of the unknown, you know? Sure. And you don't know what you're about to do. You don't know the outcome. You don't know the possibility, whatever. And once you like, oh, okay, well, I'm women. I can control that. I control the outcome. That's where the biggest fear like it's eliminated at, you know? And so it wasn't, it wasn't the fear of that particular thing. It was a fear of not knowing all the things about it, not knowing how to do it properly or not knowing the outcome or. Sure. Well, and it's also, it's learning the ability to differentiate between fear and panic, right? Because you can control fear. Panic is uncontrollable. Yes. Yes. 100%. There's like, that's, that's, I love the, the way you worded that as well. It's like when you have somebody like, 
I've been tell them I've been doing this so long I can tell what they're thinking under canopy. When I'm yep. looking at somebody like and they're 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet off the ground, and I see that right foot twitching, 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 I'm like, oh shit. Or I see their hands like opening, closing, opening, closing, open, closing. I'm like, they're gonna flare at like 75 fucking feet. Or I see their I see their feet and knees snap together like like a German soldier. You can hear them clicking. I'm like, oh, they have no intention on standing up. They're gonna peel off no matter what if it's yep. a soft landing. And so, but you see them like panicking, panicking, panic, whatever. And so I'm like, okay, that right there at the point, that's what I have to control. I don't need to teach them how to flare. Probably, I'm going to teach them that, but that's where I need to focus at. I don't need to feel, I need to focus on when they're 300 feet off the ground. So what I'm going to do with this guy or this gal in particular is, hey, right between you turn down, when, when you turn your base, when you turn your base, this is what I want you to do. Take a deep breath, let it out, look at your shoulder up and down, clear inside, you know, airspace, whatever. Another nice, slow, deep breath, do a nice, slow, easy turn, because that's where the, like, you can find out where the, where the panic starts in coming in there and start trying to negate it before that point. And so they get through that point and they're like, oh my God, it hasn't hit, you know? So sure. it's, it's finding that point in the altitude or their body screams or their, their, you know, their, what they're doing on a canopy, you go like, okay, this is, this is where this guy or the gal starts panicking at. This is where this guy's gal starts freaking out. I can, if I can touch them at that point, their landing's going to get so much easier for them. Oh, yeah. Well, we had talked uh, uh, outside the podcast. I had said one of my favorite things about uh, doing tandems was learning how to become that 20 minute psychologist. And you got 20 minutes to figure out how to, how to get, you know, you get that person out of the plane. You have 20 minutes to get a perfect stranger to trust you enough to throw them out of a plane. (laughs) We've talked before about this. And I said, uh, I said, you know, I I spend I spend about an hour with my students before we do our first jump. You know, we do a safety brief or whatever. And most of my stuff from my waivers, I already know their wing loadings. I, know, I already know who's going what first, what plane, you know, who's, who's going what load or what's, what order, whatever. And I'm talking to them for about an hour or whatever. And I'm like, all right, tell me about yourself. And how'd you get in skydiving? Have, do you have any previous injuries? And what they're saying has no relevance. Right. The way they're saying it. And if they say, well, you know, the, you know, and they I start seeing like hyperventilating before they get ready to say, well, okay, okay, that's, that's where my fear is at. Or if I talk to them, I'm like, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a, you know. I'm a so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, and I, I do some job. And if the job is like a, you know, something that's very mundane or, you know, monotonous or whatever, something that's just like keeps them in a bubble, whatever. And I'm like, all right, this person is like a closet, you know, freaking, you know, adventure person, whatever. Right. Or if I see this person and they're like, well, I'm a, a superintendent. I'm a, I'm a principal. I do whatever. I, you know, I do this job where I'm in control of at least people, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. And you get them out there and they're timid you know, skydiving or whatever. I'm like, all right, check it out. Take this personality. What makes you this right now? What do you think about over here? And I just unplug the wires, reverse them, plug them back in <laughs> and different person. Yeah. Everything is after like the second or third jump. When I record people's landings, I'll keep recording them for like 10 or 20 seconds after I record them after they land. Cause you can see their body and they're like, some dude, some of them, they just start dancing, you know, they start like, and they're, and some of them are looking around, they like look around like left, right, left, right, really fast, whatever. And they look down at their feet, left, right. And they can't believe they landed so soft or can't land accurate, whatever. And so I'm like, I showed them, I was like, listen, I don't want you to do that anymore. I want you to do that feeling. Yeah. Don't remember, don't remember what you just did. Remember that feeling you just had when you were on the ground, strive for that feeling again and everything else will work. That's awesome. It's, it's, it's figuring out the tricky parts, figuring out, Hey, I have to talk to you with a stern, you know, voice, but also I need to say things over and over and over to you with this person. I need to speak softer. I need to say, Hey buddy, you know, like you did a really good job this time, this next time let's think about, you know, and then there's some people like the military guys. I'm like, shut the fuck up and get on the plane. You know, so (laughs) you have to figure out how to talk to those people individually and communicate with them. But also here's the trick too. Some people are like, hey, when you talk to so-and-so, you are really, really nice to them. And you're, you know, like, so sometimes you have to like segregate them to communicate, you know, so it's not not perceived as like, hey, you're being really, really sweet to that guy over there. And I'm like, well, he's kind of cute, you know? (laughs) So sometimes like the hard part is, is, and sometimes I'll tell people like, hey, listen, everybody in this classroom, I am talking to this person, this person only, but, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, what I'm saying to them. Sure. Well, it's fun though, right? Because you get to you get to play different characters, and it's it's just different versions of you. But it's so many years of experience that has taught you. I need to be a different version of me for this person or that person, and it's just as fun trying to figure out who the fuck you need to be to get that person where they want to go. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's figuring out their personalities and figuring out how they learn and how, okay, what, what, what character do I have to be exactly. to get into this person's head? You know, Hey, I can say A, B, and C all day long, but when I hold my hands in the air and go like, ah, and do it this way, now they get it. Yeah. Hey, guess what? That's what I got to do. And yeah. that's what I'm gonna, I have to swallow my pride and swallow who I think I want to be and who I want to be. Like, and I, I have to be whoever they need me to be. So, so that way of they, course. They so how did, uh, how did superior flight solutions come about? Oh man. You know, I've always wanted to do my own thing for forever and ever and ever and ever. And I was teaching canopy coaching as far as accuracy and uh, some crew stuff uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, whatever. And then um, what, when I started the canopy piloting team for the Golden Knights, we started that, I started that in 2007 with a guy named Chris Moore. And after that, like the first year he retired and I just kind of kept going by myself for a while. I was like, man, this is what I want to do. You know, this, mm. is, this is what I love, you know, and I, I teach canopy stuff, but like doing the high performance stuff, I was always worried about. And so I'm like, how, how am I going to develop who I want to be or how to, how to teach different people in this aspect? Because I can talk about landing a parachute all day long. Sure. But when it comes to like high performance and somebody might die if I misspeak or if they misinterpret or mis, like misunderstand what I'm trying to say, or I don't say it properly, somebody could die. And so sure. it took me a while to get the confidence and the knowledge. And I'd said like uh, the first person I ever did a candy course through was Isaiah McCoffee. Uh, and he was on the uh, team fast tracks. Uh, and to, to this day, one of the best candy pilots I've ever met in my life. Mm. Uh, he's, he's retired, lives up in, uh, I believe Connecticut right now, um, making furniture for his family business. And then uh, I went through a canopy course with Jason Maletsky, um, Nick Batch coaches for a little while. You know, I, I did as many canopy courses as I possibly could. And at 8,000 jumps, I didn't realize how much I didn't know. Mm. I, I learned more about canopy stuff at 8,000 8, jump point. And I'm like, I need to become a student again. And once I started sure. becoming a student, I just got you know, stuff in. So I was like, how do I want to teach this stuff? And I took a little bit of each one of them. You know, I took sure. a little bit of each one of them and some very phrase, whatever. And I kind of like put my little spin on it and how I do things. And it's worked out really well for me. And so before I retired, um, I started coaching. And it was it was basically Greg Wimler's candy course. And I was doing it for about three or four years before I retired. Uh, and every new Sergeant Major of the Golden Knights would come in and say, hey, you, you know, you should like, you should think about leaving. You know, if you, if you, if you, uh, if you leave the Golden Knights, you'll probably get promoted really fast. And I'm like, you do realize I make more than you, right? <laughs> <laughs> every single weekend is a different drop zone. But I was on the East Coast because of travel time from Fort Bragg. So every weekend I was on a different drop zone. And so it was just an easy transition. You know, when I was, I was coaching so much, one day I was in the Army and one day I wasn't. But I was sure. doing candy courses. And, and then I finally switched it over to the Superior Flight Solutions. It's like I advertised it one time, uh, Superior Flight Solutions candy course. And a buddy of mine goes, hey, can you do me a favor and let me advertise this as Greg Wimler's candy course? Because I don't have people signing up. <laughs> it's like, sure. And so he said, advertise Greg. He's It filled up in like 12 hours. 12 <laughs> students per day for three days straight. 36 students in 12 hours filled up class. Filled wow. Up. And then I said, all right, do me a favor. Go on Facebook and change the name back to Superior Flight Solutions. And he did it. Like eight people dropped out. <laughs> no like, shit. So I'm like, all right, go ahead and change it back again. So it was a, it was a hard transition trying to sell the company name because everybody knew. So when I get there, Spirit Flight is this. I have my hats and have my logos and have my t-shirts and have all this stuff, whatever. And they're like, so you work for Flight One, huh? Uh. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't work for Flight One. And like, but, you know, but I, I I preach everybody to go to those courses as well. But yeah, so I started that in um, 2015, 14, 15. Um, Brought on Matt Leonard, who was my first ever employee. And I swore up and down, swore to God, I was never going to have an employee because I didn't want to put my family, my lifestyle, my everything in jeopardy for sure. somebody who spoke or whatever. And I told him, I was like, hey, if you fucking, if you don't show up for a course, if you show up, blah, 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 if you do this, blah, 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 like you're gone. No sure. questions asked, you're gone, you know? And Matt, who has, has been one of my best friends, like a brother to me, and I love him to death, um, and he's, he's literally, he's, he's my 3 a.m. bro. He's the mm. bro you can call him, you know. Um, he's uh, he's worked for me the whole time, never let me down. And he's done so many mo amazing things with Momentum. He started a flocking company now, and they do a lot of flocking stuff. You know, I participate with him sometimes, which for me is like, I'm a student again. It's right. amazing. Right. And then uh, and then uh, last year, I picked up two other people. Um, Robin Jandel, who you yep. just had not too long ago. Amazing human being. Yes, uh, she's abs an absolute angel and a beast. Yes. Piling and an angel as a personality and a human being. Um, and then uh, Andy Plisco, Andy Plisco runs evolution ratings. He's an examiner at every, 
you know, in every discipline. Um, and, and I said this about Andy about five years ago. It's like, he is the most, the most knowledgeable and professional instructor I've ever met in my entire 30 something years of skydiving. That's awesome. He goes word for word, everything in the book, the way he explains it, the way he does it and the way he runs his courses or is without a doubt, the most professional, like I said, he's, he's been doing this. He got his stuff through Brahm and, but um, yeah, he's, he's got his company's evolution ratings. Still, he does his own company stuff on his outside and, and Pete Lebrano, um, uh, the day I retired, started the military contracts, Pete Lebrano's with, been with me and I said, Pete doesn't work for me. Pete works with me. Like sure. we've always worked hand in hand. Uh, he's a former operator, um, out of special operations unit in Fort Bragg. And, uh, he's just, he's been one of my closest friends as well. And, awesome. and I've been able to rely on, but yeah, those we just, we all work together and it's been wonderful, man. Well, you know, what's really cool too is, is the skydiving community, obviously you've got options for all kinds of different courses that you can go through, but it all boils down to who fits into what type of training the best, what personality works best. I say it's exactly the same as preferring one AFF instructor over the other. doesn't mean yeah. the one you don't prefer isn't a good AFF instructor. It just means you learn better or you vibe better with this other person. It's so flavor. Absolutely. So having different canopy courses and different people out there teaching, it's not so much competition as it's just options, right? Yeah. I tell people, I was like, listen, I'm like, if you couldn't make this course next week, there's a course right down the road by taught by this other company. Yeah. I can't recommend them enough. You know, I, I tell people if you, if you go to one company and one company on one person, one person alone, you're, you're holding yourself back. Yes. I do the same thing to drop zones too. There's some drop zones that specifically teach. Like we only have this company come teach here. I'm like, congratulations. You're inbreeding your yes. drop zone. Yes. Which I understand about, you don't want different thought processes, but skydivers learn different from different people. You know, like you can't hold back your people because of like, you know, contractual, whatever, but it's, I tell, I preach flight one, alter ego, you know, Brian Germain, I preach all of them. Sure. And I tell people, if, I said, if you don't go to these other people, you're robbing yourself experience and knowledge. Well, here's the bottom line is, and again, I come from the same basic generation as you do well before canopy courses where how many fucking people do we know are bent, broken or dead because there were no yep. canopy courses. Exactly. So take a fuck. I don't care who it's with. Take a canopy course for Christ's sakes. You know, I mean, I figured out. Um, where my level of canopy uh, flight progression was and where it was going to stay as soon as Cornelia Mihai tried to teach me how to do a, a fucking uh, 450 and I got halfway around that, got dizzy and went, no, I'm good with 270. I'm never doing that again. No mas, you know, por favor, no mas. Absolutely. You know, I mean, but if you if you're not at that point where you're, you know, comfortable and competent in all conditions under the canopy that you're in, you you need a goddamn canopy course. There's just no way yeah, around it, 100%. you know, no matter who it's with. Now, that being said, people have been sitting listening to us. They think you're the guy that's going to be able to dissect how they learn the courses that you, Superior Flight Solutions offers is the direction they want to go right now. So how do they find Superior Flight Solutions, how do they find you? How do they get a hold and come out and play? We do, uh, you know, my website's www.superiorflightsolutions.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Superior Flight Solutions, obviously on Facebook. Um, we do, we run a, uh, Robin Jandel and Andy Plisco are actually home-based and myself are home-based out of Rayford, North Carolina. We, we run a candy course the first week of every month there. And then from there, it's just basically on demand. You know, I don't, I'm not reaching out to, thousand different drop zones trying to like grab whatever if they want to contact us they can um but we do a lot of military contracts as well and the reason why i hired those guys and gals because i'm like i'm so busy with military contracts and my military stuff that i'm doing is that i i don't have a whole lot of time for civilian stuff so um those guys all run my stuff um but yeah contact us on website contact us uh email greg at superiorflightsolutions.com and uh we'll hook you up just gotta just gotta have the drop zone agree to host us Sure. And then from there, it's all easy. Well, I have yet to see a drop zone that doesn't want to invite rock stars to teach their local oh, community what to do. Yeah, you know? I haven't. I've, I've run into one or two in the U.S. that like, hey, you know, and, and it's because they're their brand and loyalty to whatever. And I respect that. That's, you know, that's that's free market. Sure. You know, that's that's their their, their uh, choice. But yeah. Well, the benefit too is if uh, uh, there's one local drop zone that prefers one company over another, chances are there's another drop zone within driving distance that can host as well. So okay. um, for anybody listening, if you want Superior Flight Solutions to come out to your drop zone, there's going to be a way for you to get to work together. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely, brother. Hey, and if they chip in a little bit extra for my charity, uh, you know, you never know what I may wear. <laughs> what's the What's the charity? Tell me, tell me, promote so, it. Uh, so we did a we did a charity, a free fall to fight cancer, uh, fibrolamella. Uh, it's a fibrolamella foundation, and so fibrolamella is a cancer that strikes children between the ages of two seven two to seventeen. When they actually found out you have it, you're probably like Ooh. terminal. Ooh. And uh, one of my best friends, um, Kevin Gruyon, and uh, I get choked up talking about Kevin and Sean Gruyon. They lost their son to it. I got taken for a tandem scout before he uh, before he passed. And when he said, he's like, hey, I want you guys, when I, you know, when and if I pass, I want you guys to do a charity, raise money for this stuff. And, and uh, 100% of the proceeds go towards research, finding a cure. Awesome. None of it goes for advertising, whatever. Um, and there's actually a girl who uh, took some of the money from the funds and she actually found something scientists missed. And it was a reoccurring gene that happened like from the autopsies or whatever. And she's like, Hey, this is a link between. And so she's like on the way to find it, a cure for it or something to help, help it. But the fiber lamella foundation, uh, Scott of Carolina one time, they're like, they're like, Hey, can we have a sis boogie? Uh, we want Greg. And somebody made a comment about me wearing a tutu. I said, if you raise this much money for my charity, for my uh, children's cancer charity, I'll, uh, I'll, you know, I'll wear a tutu. And it got down to the point where like they raised $3,700 in like 12 hour period. <laughs> and so I wear a tutu, a wig, I think a halter top wings. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that I had to wear. I walked out, I had to wear it all weekend. <laughs> I walked out of the classroom teaching a block of instruction and the tandem students were all looking at me and I'm like, don't judge. <laughs> don't judge. That's awesome. Fiber Mel Foundation. Um, in, in any cancer charity, you know, any of course anything because my I lost my lot of cancer. So of course, man. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, dude, Greg, I'll tell you what, man, you've been a super busy guy and we finally got to get it done. I'm so stoked that we got to sit down and chat. We could keep going for fucking hours, but yeah, I already over time limit. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. This is absolutely perfect, man. I I really I can't thank you enough for taking your birthday morning to sit and talk to shit with me. Dude, it's my been my absolute pleasure, man. And if I, I if I did it for one reason, one reason only, is to promote your book, man. You're I cannot cannot preach enough. This is like a book made for Scott Evers. This is this is the book that you need to to latch on to if you have any comments, uh, any thought processes about fear or any hidden fears. Oh well, dude, I greatly appreciate it. And again, I, I really appreciate you and your time. Yeah, brother. Enjoy your wine, buddy. See you, brother. Later, brother. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as Enziero Sports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.